Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's podcast on the big and interesting stories in the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and today I'll be looking at the legacy of Qasem Soleimani, the legendary Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps commander who was targeted and killed in January 2020 in a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad. Until his death, Soleimani was seen as the most powerful figure in Iran behind the supreme leader Ayatollah Khamenei and revered for his daredevil courage across the region. He played an instrumental role assembling an array of Shia militias against the Islamic State, leading to their defeat in Iraq. However, those very same militias became the hallmark of impunity, corruption and lawlessness in Iraq. Soleimani was Israel's bet noir, backing Hezbollah and other malign actors, and began threatening the United States before his death. Arash Azizi is the author of a fascinating biography of Soleimani called Shadow Commander. We talked about the impact of Soleimani's influence and the vacuum that his death created. Welcome to our program, Arash. It's so great to have you here with us today. Thank you, Amber, and it's great to be with you. So I just finished your amazing book, Shadow Commander, biography of Qasem Soleimani, and it was really, really fascinating. And of course, you know, he's been dead for now more than three years, yet very much present, very much alive. People, you know, talk of him as if he's still a force. And so I want to kick off by asking you, is is Qasem Soleimani still around? Does he still have an impact or has he left a kind of vacuum behind him? It's, it's a really excellent question. And I think the answer is uh, yes to both. Qasem Soleimani is still here in the sense that the world that he helped build, i.e. this world in which Iran has been able to marshal tens of thousands of people across the Middle East in a variety of militias that are coordinated with it from Tehran. This sort of really extraordinary world uh, and this multinational army that Soleimani was able to put together, well, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, still there. So that's his legacy, if you will. At the same time, they, there's, there's no doubt that there is, his shoes have not been filled. In fact, his successor as the head of the Quds Force, that is the external wing operation of the external operations wing of the IRGC, uh, Ismail, it's a guy called Ismail Ghani. And I think the regime leaders have decided early on that there's no use to trying to have another Soleimani. So he doesn't really play that role. It's bureaucratically filling that position. He doesn't fill the role that Soleimani had. And what do I mean by that? He doesn't have, of course, the kind of charisma that Soleimani has. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to have spoken really Arabic before he got on the job, and he was mostly involved with Eastern, you know, the sort of militias east of Iran and the operations east of Iran in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And he also hails from that area himself, from, from Iranian Khorasan. But yeah, Soleimani was able to, really, he was a on-the-field commander. He had personal relationships with dozens of militia leaders in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria, and he was able to shuttle back and forth between them. He was really this kind of active charismatic, on-the-scene uh, kind of leader that the, that Fani is simply not. And there are also other factors which have led to the weakening of this, you can call it Iran's empire of, of militias in the region. These the factors include domestic resistance in countries like Iraq and Lebanon, Iran's weakening financial situation, 
uh, and also some changes in, in diplomacy that are that are you know that we can talk about. But so yeah, the longest story short is that Soleimani is here in in, in the sense that the the, the sort of army that he built is still here, but he also his vacuum is very much felt because um, there is you know no one can really do what he did and continue the kind of leadership and military role that he played. But looking for instance at Iraq and at Syria, where he was obviously very very active, what would you say the direct impact of his death has had in the way politics? And war play out in those two countries. Has it been on balance a good thing that he's no longer around or a bad thing? I guess it depends on whose vantage point. But, you know, if you could cover the different vantage points and tell us what you think. You know, I would say from the perspective, let me start with Iraq, where his absence is, you know, he's mostly felt. From the perspective of Iraqi sovereignty, of this Iraq wanting to be a sovereign, independent country, and from the perspective of peace in the region, which I think it's, you know, it depends on having sort of sovereign states like Iraq, Soleimani definitely played a very negative role. He undermined Iraqi sovereignty by supporting and putting together these Iraqi Shia groups that were often doing the bidding of Iran, and often were doing the bidding of this, let's call it what they call it themselves, the axis of resistance, this really uh, series of of networks linked to Tehran in the region. They really helped undermine Iraqi sovereignty. And actually, so a lot has happened since Soleimani's killing on on January 2020. Really, Iraq has gone through so much. It changed prime ministers a few times. It's sort of sidelining of Muqtada Sadr, this Shia leader that was very significant. But let me just point out to Mustafa Kazemi, the previous prime minister, who was really, uh, I think, one of the more inspiring leaders we've seen in the Arab East in the last little while, in, in that he was a guy who he didn't want to he didn't want to fight with Iran, he didn't want to have a, a bad relations with Iran. And um, but he did spy, want to by the way, right? He used to be the head of intelligence. So Kazemi really was someone who was trying to assert Iraqi sovereignty. He, he, and, you know, Kazemi's influence and legacy is still here. He really developed Iraq's relations with Saudi Arabia. He developed Iraq's relations with Egypt and Jordan. And he had to really confront this Soleimani's men, basically. Soleimani himself was gone, but he had to confront this, this, this Shia militias. And, and Iraq has gone through a lot since then, as I said. But today, the prime minister, Sudani, is once more someone who, despite the fact that this pro-Tehran militias, uh, militias and political parties lost in the elections through a lot of maneuvers they were able to get back into the parliament and you know they were instrumental in appointing the current in the, the current prime minister but so to answer more directly your question I think Soleimani definitely had a malign influence in this sense for Iraq it wasn't good news for Iraqi sovereignty and he, he, in his absence as I said a lot has changed in Iraq so you, you can't really be looking at this one man but it is true that Iran lost one person who was very instrumental in, in putting these Iraqi uh, Shia militias and political parties together um, now you know that doesn't mean that there are others who are doing that but you know they've never been able to really feel that should like someone like Soleimani as for Syria Soleimani was absolutely instrumental in the victory of Assad in, in, in many of the battles in the Syrian civil war. Money was instrumental in Russian, in securing Russian involvement in that war. I have, you know, in the book, I, as you see, I've described the, uh, the meetings that he had with Putin. I was able to get sort of insights in that meeting from people on the both sides. And it, it's very clear that, that, you know, Putin 
Putin's personal meeting with Soleimani was in, important in, in him committing to Russia there. And but in terms of his absence, I think uh, by the time already by the time already that he was killed, things had moved on in Syria, and the role of Iranian Iranians on sort of militia level had been decreased. But the place where his absence is mostly felt is Iraq. And, and actually, if you talk to people who are sort of involved there. For a very long time, they've been struggling with how to fill this shoe. At some point, Hassan Nasrullah, the leader of Hezbollah in, in Beirut, was sort of asked if he could, you know, fill in that uh, sort of a role of a linchpin to put together this very discordant Iraqi Shia militias. You know, and I think they, from what I understand in some meetings, Nasrullah was like, you know, you guys, I kind of have a job already and, uh, you know, I'm not looking for a second job. So it's very difficult for someone like Nasrullah to fill in. So, uh, yeah, I think in Iraq, you feel this absence and... Uh, I, th- I don't think that many many Iraqis will, probably will want to miss him. You said that the role of the militias in Syria had diminished. I, I know a lot of people would disagree with that. Can you just expl- like explain that? Unpack well, by, that? By which I mean, yeah, for sure, by, by which I mean that there was a time that Soleimani led tens of thousands of soldiers from Afghanistan, Pakistan, I- Iran, Lebanon, Syria, actually, from across the world, really, there were even those from North Africa and other other places who who fought under the command of the money. Very few from North Africa, I have to say, so probably handfuls, but fought under the command of Soleimani and helped Assad win these important territorial gains. But both the gains are already there now. So now, as we see, there is a process of Assad sort of normalizing the ties of the Syrian state. Syria has gotten its seats back in the Arab League. There is a you know, there's a sort of a campaign for it to have normalized relations with countries across the region, including most importantly, its neighbor to the North Turkey. So, um, so the militias don't have the same fighting role that they did. They're still there. They're present in, in several places. They have a very important role in this very thorny and sensitive question of uh, confrontation with Israel, which, you know, which, you know, if, if there's five places in the world where there's a potential for a very bad war happening. That's probably one place is this uh, this borders of Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. This this you know beautiful part of land that should be. I hope one day can be a you know beautiful peaceful area full of historical sites and great hiking opportunities. But at the moment, it's a place where there are Iranian militias. There's there's Hezbollah, and you know on the Syrian side in Guanaykere, there's also a significant presence. But but they have less. They have less, much, much, much less role in in broader developments where Iran is now trying to enter with with economic uh, soldiers, as they call them themselves, and with sort of a diplomatic economic competition with Russia. And uh, yeah, there is less role of Quds Force in day-to-day affairs in Syria, whereas there was a time where Quds Force determined daily. Uh... So a figure like Soleimani really becomes relevant in, in a situation where there's real conflict, it seems. As you describe in your book, he rose with the Iraq-Iran war. That's where he distinguished himself initially. But then also in the war against the Islamic State and uh, won the respect, really, of his Western uh, interlocutors who were fighting the same war, the Americans. I've heard people praise him. You know, U.S. officials do that, certainly Kurdish officials. But... I guess, as you say, he, he, his ego just grew too big, right? And with those conflicts kind of winding down, he sort of maybe overstepped his role because you, at the start of this conversation, said that 
Iran wasn't interested in having another Soleimani right now, which in turn suggests that to some extent, it's Iran who created Soleimani rather than Soleimani distinguishing himself purely through his own merit, right? So, I mean, what kind of lesson lies there for uh, aspiring Soleimanis? Well, you know, I'm not giving career advice to, to legionnaire soldiers, but, uh, you know, about a couple of things that you said, first of all, he definitely, you know, he definitely had a lot of respect. If you talk to, actually, you mentioned Iraqi Kurdistan. I think across Iraqi Kurdistan, a lot of people had respect for him as someone who really was instrumental in committing Iran to the fight against ISIS. You know, these things are easy to say, but when ISIS, um, now we can have a lot broader analysis and see some of the policies Soleimani had driven before really helped in alienating Sunnis in the northern areas, which helped the rise of ISIS later. So we can have all those analysis. But the point is, the moment when ISIS was, you know, within kilometers of Erbil, there was the idea that, there, you know, ISIS could take over a KRG. Soleimani did show up, and he showed up personally, and he showed up in significant numbers. In Tuz Khormatu, this Shia Turkaman village, you know, he basically parachuted into this village when there was ISIS fighters within kilometers. And look, it's not just the movies, right? We all love a commander who is able to show up and be present on the scene. And now, you know, you kind of have respect for that and respect in this sense, right? And he definitely uh, was one. And there are tons of examples like that in the in the Lebanon war with Israel in 2006, Hezbollah-Israel war. Um, Soleimani, as you know, went twice, in the middle of the war, went twice, smuggled himself onto the scene. These are things that you don't forget, right? And definitely people, these young people who fought with him didn't forget. So he definitely had a lot of, you know, he had, he had a lot of, uh, he commanded a lot of respect like that. But, you know, it's a very fascinating question of did Iran build Soleimani or did Soleimani build Quds Force? I think this is in fact a question you always face as a biographer, right? In fact, biography as a genre is kind of suspect, right? Of trying to build up this person and like look into all aspects of his life to live up to something, or is he just really a result of the system? I think, you know, as someone who really loves biographies and, you know, I hope to continue writing them for, for years to come, I am on the side of believing that it's actually people and individuals who have a very important role in changing history. The, the reason Iran really cannot have another Soleimani so easily is that, you know, these are not capabilities that, that one person has. Yes, their bureaucracy is as important. Yes, you needed a system to, for him to come up. Yes, there is a regime-wise policy that he can follow. Um, but it's not every day that you get someone who is able to move between Beirut, Damascus, Tehran, and Baghdad within one day, who commands an army of, as I said, people of many different countries, who is able to show up on the scene and in like many instances that I described, and there are even before that in Kabul in the 1990s and all that. It's not every day that you can get someone like that. So as someone who obviously, I've, you know, I make my cards clear, I don't think Soleimani was a force for good, um, but he was definitely a kind of soldier with kind of capabilities that any army would uh, love to have on their side. And his killing will has left a big, big vacuum for the, well, for the Iranian uh... regime. Yeah, but, you know, when he died, the Iranian regime vowed revenge, and it didn't really come. Why is that? That's an excellent question. So we, we've all learned, uh, you know, I remember there was a talk in Toronto a while back between, you know, it's maybe 10 years ago or so, 
Valley Nasser was debating someone and this this other person kept talking about, you know, the Shia martyrdom complex and the Mullahs have a martyrdom complex. And, you know, Valley Nasser caught him in um, and said, you know, these guys are like in their 80s. You don't get to be in your 80s if you have, you know, a martyrdom complex. But I think basically that's the issue with the Iranian regime. You know, these guys, this this Mullahs there are, you know, they they like power and they've, you know, they've been at it for a very long time and they're not uh, some impatient teenagers wanting to blow themselves up as it's sometimes portrayed. These are very, these are very um, calculated leaders, especially Khamenei himself. So, yes, they, they say all the big wars, they issue arrest orders for Trump. At some point, you think they even like the comic headlines that they get, right? Like, you know, Iranian court asks that to kill Trump and Pompeo and all that. But and of course they have done a lot of they have done a lot of terrorist operations around the world. But they're also very careful, so they're not suicidal. They're not going to get into a confrontation that no can be their immediate destruction. I should also say though that the immediate in the immediate aftermath of Soleimani's killing, you know, it was a very dangerous time. Now, as you know, Iran attacked a base in Iraq that hosted U.S. soldiers. Many soldiers got some light injuries. In fact, there's a debate on how light these injuries uh, are. It looks like some of them are less light than or more grave than was initially imagined. And of course, an Iranian passenger airline was shut down and hundreds of people got killed in that. My point is that my point is that there's a very dangerous thing that people say, oh, look, we killed Soleimani and nothing happened. So all these scares about the war was for nothing. It was easy to say. When the, you know, most of the times when there's a war possibility, wars don't happen. But there was absolutely a real possibility that a greater conflagration could have happened and it would have been absolutely dangerous. So I think I think you shouldn't you shouldn't forget that. So final question, is there a contender out there, not necessarily from Iran, another Suleimani like figure in the region that you could point to? There is no one there was there is no one really like him. You know, it, it is also the it is also the case that the height of Iran's policy of having all these militias and fighting in, in several fronts, that, that is gone, right? We, in fact, we have some sort of a diplomatic spring, if you will, recently, right? There is a lot of reestablishment of diplomatic ties between countries. And, you know, it's the Middle East. We can't ever predict when there will be sort of wars again and, and what, kind of, uh, you know, what kind of conflagrations will happen again. But the bigger question, I think, more uh, important than just Soleimani himself, is that you, we had an era, of course, in the, in the 20th century during what we call, call them Arab Cold War, in which several Middle Eastern leaders endorsed militias, terrorists, you know, whatever you want to call them, groups across the Middle East and in fact around the world, right? So Saddam did this, Syria, Assad did this, his son Bashar did this, Gaddafi, of course, my favorite, uh, you know, <laughs> in terms of, the favorite in terms of he supported, you know, militias across the world from Japan to to Italy, to you know, to Britain, to across the world, and that age is kind of gone. We are we live in a much more state-centered age, and, and that's why you can say the Iranian regime's extra state supporting these militias and going breaking really the sort of polite rules of the statehood is kind of extraordinary. And the question is, will Iran continue this really destructive policy, or will it will it tame it down? Now, throughout the history of the Iranian regime, we've seen this battle of, of those who are, if you will, statists. Those who are like, look, basically, we should have a state-to-state relations. We want to do something. We should do it through our army. And those who've supported this disruptive support of militias and all that. 
And I think this battle will always go on. And if the Iranian regime, so this is my structural answer for in the previous question, I sort of said that Soleimani is, matters individually. Um, but the more structural answer is yes, if the, Iranian, if the Iranian regime wants to again invest millions of dollars in building this kind of militia operations across the region, new Soleimani is villarized. But for the sake of our region, and for the sake of peace in our region and for the sake of welfare of, of different peoples in our region, I hope that, you know, we don't build commanders in the shadows and establish normal trade and people-to-people ties between the countries, which will always be better than the kind of brinksmanship and support of the militias that has characterized the Iranian regime's policy toward the Middle East in the last few decades. Well, thank you. I could go on, but I know you have a plane to catch. We never got to talk about the JCPOA or Iran-Saudi rapprochement and what all that means and how, you know, does Suleimani's absence make make all of that easier or not, whatever. But next time, I'm sure we'll have more opportunities. I thank you very much for joining us, Arash. Thank you so much, Amber. It's it's, it's a real pleasure and I'm always happy to come back to Hopefully talk about even better events. <laughs> we, can, we can always try to be a little optimistic. And this brings us to the end of another episode of On the Middle East. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Arash and that you'll buy his book. It's called Shadow Commander. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>